Why should I believe in your Messiah? I've met a lot of interesting people in my 14 years in Houston, but perhaps none more interesting than Candace, who um, visited us on a Mother's Day. And our outreach department, our uh, outreach folks who do such a great job ministering to those who come and visit with us, called her and invited her to visit with me. And one day we had an appointment in my office, and uh, early in our visit, she said to me, why should I believe in your Messiah? And I said, well, tell me your story. And she said, well, I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. And for many years now, I've been a NASA scientist. I have written, um, I have written programs that are running in the space shuttle, she said. And she explained to me she'd gotten a 1600 on her SAT and uh, had gotten numerous degrees and accolades. And then she looked at me again and very pointedly said, why should I believe in your Messiah. And once she had told me all of her um, brilliance, I, I, you know, I, I started to explain simply, and I said, well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. And I thought, well, she actually is a rocket scientist. And, and suddenly I was feeling kind of dumb. And so I said, you know, I don't know much, but there was this guy named uh, C.S. Lewis, and uh, he was very smart, and he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And I, I gave her that book, and I gave her a Bible, and she said, I'll read them. And before she left, she said, I have three weeks to get my life together. Now, how would you answer her question? Why should I believe in your Messiah? A person who, from the world's point of view, has got everything going her way. She is brilliant. She is bright. She is gifted. She has a wonderfully fulfilling job. But people want to know, why should I believe in what you believe? In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read from the first part of the gospel and the last part of the gospel, and then we'll talk about what's in between. We see what John has to say about faith. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together tonight? I'm so delighted I get to teach John tonight. I can't think of any book I would rather teach. In fact, I think this and then Acts the next time, which I think is uh, three weeks from tonight, and then Romans. Uh, those are the high points, perhaps, of, of all that we've done, and uh, particularly John tonight, where John writes in John chapter 1, the end of his prologue, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then at the end of this gospel, in chapter 20, not the last chapter, but the next to last chapter, in the last words in that next to last chapter, John 20, verse 30, right after Jesus appears to Thomas, it says, it's sort of a summary Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Pray with me. Father, teach us that we may believe and that we may be able to tell others why they should believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody described the Gospel of John and said, it is shallow enough that a child can play in it. Think of the simplicity of the stories in the Gospel of John. But it's deep enough that a whale could swim in it. I love the Gospel of John. I suppose I've loved this Gospel since my earliest years of reading Good News for Modern Man with the stick figure pictures on the inside, the little paperback copy that looked like newsprint on the cover with the red letters, probably one of my first Bibles. And when I first started reading John, I didn't understand much. I suppose I, I still don't understand much. But even as a child, I could tell this is a different rendering of the story. That, that Matthew, as we have studied, has this wonderfully comprehensive view of Jesus' teaching. And Mark gives us just the facts. And, and Luke wants us to understand the precise details. He gives us parables that perhaps nobody else gives us. The story of the prodigal son, uh, the good Samaritan. We're indebted to each of these gospels, each unique each necessary in its own way. And then along comes John, who doesn't tell us any parables at all. John, who begins with this beautiful statement about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He made everything, and then he brings it down, doesn't he, to say, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the, the glory of the one and only, full of grace, and truth, Jesus, the Word who became flesh. And, and somehow people, but John shows us here even in the prologue, some people are going to recognize Him and some people aren't. Some will not receive Him, but others will receive Him. And they will believe and they will be transformed and they will become the children of God. Aren't you grateful that that John gives us a glimpse of Nathaniel, who doesn't believe anything good can come from Nazareth. It's he who shows us the, the miracle of transforming water into wine at Cana. And it is, it is he who introduces us to Nicodemus. Nick at night, I have called him in the past, who, who nearly believes and then, and then isn't quite sure he believes, but at the end brings the spices for Jesus' burial. Seventy-five pounds worth because nothing will motivate generosity like guilt will. And he comes bringing that almost after the fact and it's John who will show us along the way that there are those who want to believe, like Nicodemus. Secretly they believe, but they're afraid of what's going to happen if they, if they publicly acknowledge their faith. The parents of the blind man, for instance, the neighbors and others who just aren't sure about whether or not they should confess their faith. There are some who receive miracles, like the lame man in John chapter 5, who, who doesn't believe in Jesus. Read it closely. He goes and turns Jesus in to the authorities, and Jesus says, stop sinning. Or something worse will happen to you. 
and the blind man, by contrast, all of these stories. And what John gives to us, if I could sort of bring it together, what he gives to us are, are signs, not just miracles, not just wonders, but specific signs that Jesus says, I am doing so that you will believe. Depending upon how you count them, I think there are six or seven of these signs. The other thing John gives us that no other gospel gives us is these I am sayings about Jesus, where Jesus will say, I am. And even as he says, I am, he reveals something about himself. So if you ask John, the beloved disciple, probably, probably one of those disciples of John the Baptist, along with Andrew, who's standing there when John the Baptist sees Jesus at a distance and says, look, the Lamb of God, look, the Lamb of God, and they follow after him. John, we believe, and Andrew follow after him. And Jesus says, what are you looking for? Where do you live, they ask. And Jesus says, come and see. And they do come. And oh, do they see who Jesus is. I, I know we live in a world. I, I, I'm, I'm half Missourian. I know we live in a world that says seeing is believing. Just show me. If you can show me. If you can prove it to me, if you can demonstrate it, if you can give me some empirical evidence, then I will believe. But John has a different take on that, doesn't he? John doesn't believe that seeing is believing. John says, no, seeing isn't believing. But believing is seeing. And only those who believe will ever see Kierkegaard is right when he says one of the problems of Christendom is that we think because we know the details of Jesus' life that we know Jesus. But believing is more than just cognitive understanding and uh, recognition of details and remembering facts. No, knowledge is really about relationship from the Old Testament to the New. Knowledge is about relationship and relationship comes when we believe. So why should anybody believe in our Messiah? That, that cashier down at um, Starbucks that you'll run into this week. That neighbor who's out there watering their yard, though it's already rained so much this week. That, that person who comes over to you and says, did you know I lost my family member and I'm hurting over that? Why should they believe in our Messiah? And I'll tell you what John's gospel tells us. We should believe in Jesus first because of who he says he is. Come to these I am sayings that Jesus uses. Remember the background is in the Old Testament. It's, it's Moses talking to a burning bush and saying, Whom shall I say sent me? And the voice from the bush that is burning but is not consumed, says, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. We fast forward into the future, into the time when Jesus begins to walk among people and, and there's a series of, of signs or miracles that He performs. First, He turns water into wine. Then He uh, heals the nobleman's son. Then He heals the lame man in chapter 5. But it's in chapter 6 that he performs the, the fourth of those signs where he, it says he asks his disciples to feed the, the, the people and his disciples say, well, we wouldn't have enough to do it. And, 
And Jesus says, well, where can we get food? And he asked the question, John 6 says, because he already knew what he was about to do. No other gospel shows as clearly that Jesus knows. He already knows what he's about to do. And he feeds this multitude of people. And now he has friends for life, like feeding that stray cat in your neighborhood. Once you feed them, it's hard to get rid of them. And everywhere Jesus went, they followed him. He, he, went, across the, he went across the water by night without a boat to get away from the crowd, but they found him the next day. Where are you? Where have you been? Isn't it time we eat again? They say, Jesus says, yeah, you, you don't believe because of the sign. You, you're just happy that you got fed. And they say, oh, but Moses fed the people manna in the wilderness. Jesus, we'd like for you to, to do that again. Show us some sign. Jesus said, here's the, here's the sign. Here's the work that my Father requires of us that we believe I'm not always going to be here to provide the next meal. Will you or will you not believe in me? And they're perplexed by that. And there's a sort of dance of words there. And finally, Jesus looks at them in John chapter 6, verse 35 and says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that has come down. I'm the bread that will satisfy the needs of your soul. He says it again in in chapter 6, verse 48. Again, in chapter 6, verse 51, he says, I am the living bread. I'm the bread that gives you life. And, and they will not believe in him. And so Jesus presses on. And it's in chapter 7 that he says, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, Graham Kendrick has a song based on these words. Is anyone thirsty? Anyone let him come to me, Jesus says. And if he believes in me, that's what God's looking for. If he believes in me, it'll be like rivers of living water flow out of his life. And then in chapter 8, we have the second of Jesus' I am sayings. Right, right after that story, that amazing story about the woman caught in adultery. We're indebted to Jesus and we're indebted to John for these stories about the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. And then right after that, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now you can go back to chapter 1 and see even in the prologue, he is the light, verse 9, that is coming into the world. He's always coming into the world. But Jesus, this light of the world, and it's particularly revealed there in chapter 8 as he argues with them and they say, well, we're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was... I am, and they want to kill him. And at this point, Jesus will begin to say openly, I know you want to kill me. And some will say, well, you're possessed with a demon. Why would we want to kill you? But just as soon as the, he fades off the scene, the narrator shows us they're plotting. They're planning to kill him. And it's in chapter 9 that they encounter this man who was born blind and Jesus' disciples who have their own kind of spiritual darkness, don't they, when they say, so who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Was it his parents' sin? Uh, was it his own prenatal sin? Uh, why was he born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned so that he was born blind. But as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, and I want to bring light. And then there's that amazing series of dialogues only ever two characters on the stage at the same time first it's it's the neighbors and they're talking about him is it he it looks like him I don't know if it's him is it he I don't know is it he I am he he says and the blind man says something like Jesus would say I am 
He already, he's beginning to be identified with Jesus, but he doesn't know much. Who healed you? Well, I think it was the man they called Jesus. The man they called Jesus. Well, what do you think about him? Who do you think he is? I, I think he's a prophet. Well, we know he's not a prophet, so they call his parents in. Well, this is our son, and we know he was born blind, but, but how he can see? I don't know. He's old enough. Ask him because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue for saying that they believed in Jesus. So the Pharisees bring the man back in and say, go ahead, just say he's a bad guy and we'll let you go. And he says, you know, I can't see him as a bad guy. Now that I see, <laughs> I used to be blind, you remember, and now I can see, and it's hard for me now that I see to see him as a bad guy. I think he must be a good guy. Don't we know? And he begins to teach the religious leaders and they throw him out. And there he is alone. And Jesus walks on the stage and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who, who is this Son of Man? I am, Jesus says. Lord, I believe. And Jesus becomes for him light, light of the world. We struggle with light and darkness, don't we? I think about that that group of men who were building a, a tunnel and they were digging and the boss came by and one man, everybody else was digging and one man was just standing with his hand like that and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm a light bulb. I'm shining light on the others. He said, you better get to work or I'm going to fire you. And he walked away and came back and there was the man again and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm a light bulb. I'm shining light on the other men. And, and he said, you better get to work. I'm going to fire you. The third time he came back, saw the man standing there and he said, you're fired. And so the man walked away and all the other men with their shovels started to walk away. And, and the man said, why are you leaving? He said, you can't, they said, you can't expect us to work in the dark, can you? <laughs> they believed he was a light bulb too. How many Christians does it take uh, to change a light bulb? There are various versions of that. Some 15 Baptists, they say, one, to change the light bulb and three, to make up the committees that will be needed to do it and bring the potato salad for the dinner afterward. We, we Baptists need, I tell you what we need, we need light. And Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world, will say in Matthew, you are the light of the world. As if to say, his shining on us somehow changes us so that like Moses come down from the mountain, we continue to reflect. What does Paul say to the Corinthians with an even increasing glory? We shine his light in the world. I am, he said, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. In the very next chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. At first, he says, I'm the gate for the sheep. Anybody who comes in any other way, he said, they're, they're, not, they're, they're thieves. They're there to hurt the sheep. But he said, my sheep know my voice. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In, in the next chapter, in chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember that when Lazarus, his friend, gets sick? It says, the one whom you love, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus stays right there. It's perplexing, isn't it, sometimes when we know that God knows that we're in a bad situation. But it's not apparent how he's helping in that time. Why, this is the story of Lazarus and his two sisters. They're Jesus' close friends there. They live in Bethany, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And he's been in their home and they have fed him before. And and he has taught in their home, and, and now they say, we need your help, and he doesn't come until, until days have passed. And then when he gets there, Martha comes out and says, maybe what you felt at some point when somebody you love has passed away. Lord, if you'd been here, if you had been here, if you had just done something, 
This one I love would not have died. If you had been here, and Jesus says, even now your brother can live. I know he'll live in the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the minute you believe in me, you really start to live a life that nobody can ever take away. And then he asks her, do you believe this? Mary comes as well. Eventually they make their way to the tomb and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. It's, um, it's the next to last of those great signs that Jesus performs. And Jesus literally lifts Lazarus to life and that's when things get really rough because everybody starts believing in him and the polarization takes place like 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 fragments of metal and a magnet Jesus either draws people if I be lifted up I'll draw all people to myself he says in chapter 12 or he repels them because they refuse to believe and there are both kinds of people in the gospel of John have you noticed there are both kinds of people in the city of Houston? There are those who believe and those who do not believe. And here and here are these people who follow Jesus and believe in him. And in chapter 13, Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem and he washes his disciples' feet and he tells them to love each other and to serve each other because they want to know who's going to be the greatest and and Jesus knows they can never be great unless they serve. I've set an example for you. One Maundy Thursday, we, we washed feet. He, he washes their feet and says, I want you to do this. I want you to serve each other as well. And then at the end of chapter 13, after he predicts that Peter will deny him and predicts that, that Judas is going to betray him, then at the end, he can tell they're bothered. And in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are, are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you and, and where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm not trying to fool you, Jesus says. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Thomas is always honest with his doubt, isn't he? Let's go die with him, he says in the chapter before. And in this chapter, he, he says, um, we don't know where you're going. How, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus says, oh, here's another of those I am sayings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I know, even as I say that, as long as I've preached that, that sounds awfully exclusive, doesn't it? Chase was working on a project this week and asked me about a book, and I bought the book and read the book, and we dialogued about it this week. What happens to those people who never hear the gospel? That's what the book is about, and it offers three options. The exclusivist, restrictivist view says, unless people know about Jesus and believe in Him, they cannot go to heaven. Now, that would seem simple enough to us, but that's the exclusivist view. But there's another view. The, the inclusivist view says, now, wait a minute. There may be some people like those Old Testament saints who've never heard about Jesus, but they trust in him. They believe. They're not saved by their good works, but they trust in him. They just don't know what his name is, and God is just and kind, and, and he's going to save them. That's the inclusivist view. But the most interesting one that I read this week was the divine perseverance view that said, even after they die, God is just not going to let anybody be lost. And so, and so, he's going to give him another chance. It's going to be sort of ollie ollie income free at the end. You know, you just, you didn't make it in in time, but the good news is the game's not over yet. And you, and you can come in. And Chase said to me, Dad, which of these do we believe? 
And he gave me a chance just to talk with him about what the Scriptures teach. But you know, they base that last one on chapter 5. They get that out of the Gospel of John, or at least they think they do, where it says, even the dead have heard my voice. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. But it matters what we believe about this. Because if you think at the end it's divine perseverance and everybody's going to get in anyway, then I'm wondering why Jesus was on the cross. I'm, I'm wondering why... Why people are losing their lives. A friend of mine told me of a convention he was at and somebody stood up and said, you know, it helps me to know that, that we can just preach to people now. Jesus is not the way. Jesus is just a way. And a missionary from Pakistan stood up and said, brothers, if we really believe that, I need to call the people who are dying for the sake of Jesus Christ in my country. There's no need for them to die if you don't really have to believe in Jesus to be saved. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. I am the life. And there is no life apart from me. All these miracles that Jesus has performed and all these signs, the last of those, the sign of Lazarus. And then we find Jesus just teaching His disciples, teaching them. And He says in chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And my Father sometimes has to prune you a little bit so that you can bear fruit. Bruce Wilkinson has uh, identified four levels here. There are the people who bear no fruit. Don't let that be you. The ones who bear fruit. The ones who bear more fruit. And the ones who bear much fruit. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you ask anything in my name related to the kingdom, just ask, God says, because above all, I want you to bear fruit. My friends were talking at lunch last week about, about pruning their crepe myrtles. They said, we almost killed them. We cut them back so far. I thought about my roommate, Carter Shotwell, whose father, um, um, Bob Ed Shotwell was in Austin at Hyde Park for all those years. And Carter, who was my landlord and our roommate, and, and his cousin was our roommate, Wesley. And, and, and Carter, we had a rose bush in front of our house, and we loved to take a rose on our dates when I was a sophomore. We'd just cut off a rose and, and go see a girl. It was, it was very fruitful for us to do that. And then, and then Carter, one day, we were all gone in class, and we came back, and it looked like somebody had killed the rose bush. And there were just little stubs and no flowers and nothing left there. We were going to sue him, but it was his rose bush after all. His dad owned the property, and so there we were. And he said, don't worry, the roses will come back. We doubted it. But oh, when they came back, it was marvelous. I wonder if you're in a time in your life where God is cutting some things back and you feel the pain of that and you wonder if the pain is ever going to stop. But trust this, our Father is the gardener and He knows where to cut and when to cut and when He is finished. His purpose is not your pain. His purpose is that you would be productive for the kingdom, that you wouldn't just bear some fruit or more fruit, but that you would bear much fruit for the kingdom. He said, because when you bear fruit, it gives God glory, and that fruit lasts for all of eternity. In chapter 16, He tells us about the Holy Spirit who convicts the world sin and righteousness and judgment. In chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. Make them one, he says. And then he prays for us, all those who will believe. In chapter 18, Jesus begins the march, the trial with Pilate and, 
And then um, the, the betrayal. They try to arrest Jesus. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am He, He says. I am. And they all fall down. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They all fall down. And then Jesus, they can't take Him, but He gives Himself over to them willingly to be tried, to be crucified. And only John tells us that when Peter goes to the garden or when Peter goes to that, that gathering in the courtyard there, he doesn't go alone. In fact, there's another disciple who knows the high priest who gets in first. And this other disciple, we believe, is there at the foot of the cross when Jesus looks down at him, this disciple whom he loves, and says, that's your mother. And he says to his mother, Mom, that's your son. I thirst, he says. It is finished. He says, and then, and then Joseph of Arimathea comes and says, I've got a place to lay his body. And Nicodemus comes. He nearly came a couple times before, didn't he? They asked him, are you one of his disciples? And Nick is strangely silent. But now, after Jesus is dead, he comes and, and he brings the spices. He shows up and then, and then there comes that passage of time. And then Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Who, who needs the resurrection? Mary Magdalene needed it. The disciples needed it. Peter and John raced to the tomb. John outran him. But Peter stays longer. I wonder why. After he had denied Jesus three times. It's in chapter 21 that he's restored three times. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. And then we find uh, in this story that Thomas, who just wouldn't believe until he saw, but when he saw, when Jesus shows up, finally he believes. And Jesus makes this interesting statement there in 20 verse 29. He says, it's, a, it's okay to believe when you see, but it's even better to believe when you haven't seen. It's not seeing, it's believing. It's believing is seeing. Well, three weeks later, on cue, Candace came back to my office. It was back when I was in the other office, before all of this marvelous transformation. And I was there in my office, and Candace came in. She said, I read the New Testament. I said, that's great. She said, I read it twice. She brought my C.S. Lewis back. She said, I read Mere Christianity. She said, let me tell you my story. I came on Mother's Day because my father had just passed away. And I told my mother, I told my mom, I said, I've got to explore something that will give me hope. And she said, you need to stop exploring other religions. She said, in these last three weeks, my mother thought it was better not to live than to live without my father. And with brokenness, she told of the loss of mother and father. And she said, if I believe in your Messiah, all seven of my siblings will have nothing to do with me. Why should I believe in your Messiah. And I said to her, because he's the God of all comfort and the Father of all compassion. And he alone can comfort you in this time of enormous loss. And I'm, do you remember when we had an eight o'clock service in this room? I must have been standing somewhere right up there. And Candace was standing somewhere right out here. And when we started to sing the invitation hymn, this NASA scientist walked down the aisle 
and receive Jesus Christ as her personal Savior and Lord. And I remember the morning I baptized her into the arms of God who loved her with an undying love. So if anybody asks you why they should believe, tell them they should believe because of who Jesus says He is. I am that I am. And if that's not enough for them, then tell them that they should believe in Jesus because of what He's done. Not only the miraculous signs that we listed, but this one above every other one. Jesus is the only one who walked out of the tomb alive. And because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because we know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because He lives. Believing is seeing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your amazing grace and mercy and love revealed to us in Your Word. Thank You for the Gospel of John. Lord, there's nothing quite like it. We thank You for teaching us from Your Word. Help us tonight, I pray, to take Your Word to heart. Lord, let us be those who believe Not just those who know something about you, but those who actually know you. God, we love you and we thank you for all you've done for us. And we pray tonight that you would draw us near to you. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to your precious bleeding side. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.